Hello, and welcome to the Biotech 2050 podcast. Biotech 2050 is a think tank chronicling the disruptions changing the biotech industry over the next several decades. Check out our website at biotech2050.com or on your favorite podcast listening platform. I'm Rahul Chaturvedi, co-founder of this podcast and today's host. I'm also the founder and CEO of Clora. Clora is solving the biotech industry's talent crisis by organizing and providing access to worldwide life sciences expertise. You can check us out at clora.com. I'm very excited to welcome Bobby Azamian, Chairman and CEO at Tarsus Pharmaceuticals. Great to have you on today, Bobby. It's a pleasure. Thank you for having me, Rahul. Bobby, to kick us off, would love if you could talk to us about the arc of your career, what got you interested in biotech and got you to where you are today. Thank you. Like any journey, it's pretty unique. You know, I feel like in hindsight, it makes a lot of sense, but let me walk you through it. So I would say my career arc has really been about two things. It's been about really understanding the fundamentals of science and disease. And secondly, about leveraging that to bring therapies that hopefully can really serve millions of patients. I think my interest in biotech really started when I was in science. So I did a bachelor's in biophysics and always wanted to be a doctor, but actually got sidetracked on that path in doing a PhD in Oxford and digging deep in an area pretty far from life sciences, which was nanotechnology. After that PhD in chemistry, I came back to do my medical training in Boston at Harvard Med School. And I think that's where I really started thinking, how can I kind of leverage these two interests and some of the biggest diseases that affect all of us and being involved in the treatment and care of those patients, but also in taking some new technologies to bring to bear and develop better therapies for those patients. In medical school, I thought about a lot of things. I thought about being an academic. I thought about going straight into industry. I actually did an internship at Amgen between my first and second years of medical school. Ultimately, I decided I wanted to really be a doctor before I went into industry. So I did residency in internal medicine at the Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston. But when you're a resident, a lot of people think about, I want to be a cardiologist, I want to be an oncologist as a fellowship. And it was pretty clear to me that I wanted to be an entrepreneur, that I was ready after all that training to do something with it in a way that was really unique to me. I realized I didn't know a lot about entrepreneurship, but I had the instincts. And so what I decided to do was a fellowship in entrepreneurship. I think you and I talked about it. There's not that much training for folks who want to get into this, right? I was lucky to connect with a group that was founding a venture capital firm. And that firm ended up being called Third Rock Ventures. But I met serendipitously one of the founders of Third Rock and started working there during my residency and then ultimately joined full-time as a senior associate right out of residency. The thinking I had was, well, I can go and learn how the best companies are built. And that early stage of venture is a really productive place to learn because you're seeing some of the best ideas, you're meeting some of the best entrepreneurs, you're learning to evaluate those companies, but you're also learning which ones really ignite your passions personally. And so after a few years there, I actually decided to move. I love that team. I love that approach, but my passions were really leading me toward moving to Southern California, where my family had been based, but I'd never lived. And we can talk about the ecosystem here that I found so powerful. And also actually digging deeper in med tech than in biotech. And as I reflect, that really derives, I think, from the interest in serving the patient and starting with the unmet need and then finding the very best treatment, whether it's a device or a drug, to treat that patient. So I moved to a firm, Burst Ventures, which is another leading early stage VC that was the only one that had a big presence in Orange County. 
And really quickly after joining Burson, I said, I want to found a company. I think I've done my fellowship in entrepreneurship and I'm ready to go out on my own and found a company. And so I founded my first company out of Burson, essentially as an entrepreneur in residence there. That's a device company called Metavention, treating diabetes with a cardiovascular procedure. So a very ambitious company, first in class type of treatment for a disease that we all know, but doesn't yet have really durable and transformative therapies. And after about five years there, a CEO and then a CMO, I decided to reload. And I didn't take that lightly. I thought, well, okay, this is my baby. This is a company I've founded, but what if we could do it faster? What if we could do it better? What if we could essentially do it faster and scale it more quickly? And so that led me to found Tarsus. With each of the companies, I actually co-found them. So with Tarsus, I co-founded the company with another entrepreneur that is a great friend. And we both shared this interest in really taking an unmet need and dissecting it and understanding the biology and then finding a great therapy. I can talk a lot more about the Tarsus story, but from founding in 2016 to sitting here today in 23, we've been able to move really quickly and scale this. And we have a lot more plans to do that. Yeah, wonderful. Sounds certainly like accelerated progress since the time of founding. So Bobby, it's August 25th, 2023 now, and this was your Padufa date. So catch us up on what's been going on since we last connected a couple of weeks ago. It has been a whirlwind in all the best ways on a personal level and a professional level. I'll just say personally, it's been amazing because I had my first child, my wife and I did, and to have that happen right in the middle of the first product approval is doubly exciting. So the big news of Tarsus is we actually got our approval uh, a month ago. We got our approval July 24th. So it came a full month early and wasn't something we expected. We thought it could happen, but I think it really reflects the type of execution we've had throughout our history and really the unmet need and the clean and powerful profile of our drug, now Extembi, not TPO3. Amazing, Bobby. Congratulations on both fronts. Certainly seems like a, a really exciting and busy time in your life. Talk to us about the repercussions of such good news coming a month early and what that meant for you and the team. On a personal level, I was on paternity leave for a week and our chief operating officer said she called me the next Monday and said, I think you need to come in the office. And so that set off a real exciting blitz in our company. And yeah, what did it mean? It meant that we actually had to rally everything earlier than we thought. And as a company, as an entrepreneur, you plan for every scenario, but we thought the one month early scenario was possible, but not probable. And I'm really proud of our team that we were able to rally. What it meant specifically on the regulatory front is we had to get all those labeling discussions done in the weeks leading up to the approval. And those went really well. And I think that's reflected in our broad label and indication treatment of Demonex blepharitis without limitations and really inclusion of all our primary and secondary endpoint data. So that allows us to help all the patients that are suffering from this disease. And remember, we're treating a disease that has no drug treatment yet. So that new category creation, I think, is really essential to have a label that allows you to treat those patients broadly. So once we knew the labeling discussions were going really well, we thought it could come early, but the turnaround from the FDA was even faster than we had thought. And then after July 24th, our commercial and operational team really kicked things into high gear. And, and as an entrepreneur and leader now, 
we are a commercial organization. And you think about getting a product out across the country to 10,000, 15,000 doctors who want to prescribe it and the supply chain involved, the reimbursement channels involved, the pharmacies, the payers, the assistance programs for patients to actually receive the drug. And then we also hired a sales force of 85 reps. So we have 85 new Tarsons. Wow. Basically a 50% increase in our total company size that we hired in the last few weeks that are now calling on doctors. So it's been an amazing blitz. I'll say one other milestone, which is yesterday, our product became available nationwide for prescription. And so that is the culmination of all those different teams executing to have the product out there and be able to get it to patients. And as a mission-driven organization, what we see this time as really the start of our fulfillment of our mission, because now we can serve millions of patients in the next few years with this drug. And that's what it's been all about. It's been great to get data and get approval. But now, as our commercial leader, as he says, now is when the, the game really begins because yeah. this is actually selling product and, and getting it uh, in patients' hands. Bobby, I'm familiar with blepharitis and I know there's been many failed products along the way. Would love to hear your perspective on what you learned from prior failures and the team learned to get to this very meaningful mind, this meaningful milestone for this patient population. That's a great question. And I think about that philosophically as an entrepreneur often. Some companies have great success going into existing categories, right? Going and treating, let's say, rheumatoid arthritis with a better anti-inflammatory, right? No bigger market in pharma. And you know, if you can be better in that disease, you're going to have great success. We took a different approach from the start. We said, we want to serve a disease that, as you suggested, has been really challenging to treat and thus has no approved therapy. So how are we going to do that as a new organization, as an entrepreneur who's inherently naive about something when you get into it? And what we did is we followed the science and we found that blepharitis, while known about for decades, actually has different segments. And the biggest segment is demodex blepharitis, meaning that you actually have demodex mites in your eyelids that are proliferating and causing the inflammation of blepharitis. And that science had only been developed really in the last 10 years, or when we founded the company five, six years ago, it was pretty new, but we saw that was reaching an inflection point. And I think that's really been the first key to our success is target the right patient with the right disease. And then the second part of it is doing it with the right drug. And once we knew there was a parasite causing a large proportion of the disease, actually two thirds of blepharitis is now understood to be caused by Demonex, 25 million Americans. So once we knew that we had a target that we could go after, we looked across the drug landscape and said, what's the best antiparasitic drug? And we found, I think we talked about it before, we found to our astonishment that the best drugs have been developed to actually treat mites and fleas and ticks in animals. And so we brought that drug to human medicine and to the eye at an eye drop. And so those two, I think, are the foundational keys to our success now as a commercial company. It's not enough to just have a great product. We have to make sure we're getting the marketing messaging out the right way, being in the doctor's offices the right way, and making sure essentially 
And this is so important, I've realized that patients can actually afford and access the drug. That to me is one thing that if I were founding another company or advancing any product within Tarsus, reimbursement has to be solid. And I'm really proud of, of our start there at Tarsus. I think that'll be one of the keys to our success, frankly, in our launch is strong reimbursement. If you're an HR or hiring manager in biotech, you know all too well that the pool of experts seeking full-time employment is shrinking. Filling key full-time positions can be a long, drawn-out ordeal that can slow the pace of execution and growth. Throw away the old hiring playbook. Now you can build a biotech dream team in a fraction of that time. Find out how. Visit Clora.com. Clora. Talent optimized. Nowadays, it is quite rare for a biotech to go all the way through to commercialization and actually sell the approved product. Talk to us about how you've been preparing the team for that mindset shift. You, know, you still have a, a handful of programs that are in the clinic and you're aggressively pursuing those, but also becoming now a, a commercial publicly traded biotech. It's a really good question. And fortunately, I have people on my team that have decades of commercial leadership experience, but also they've been through that commercial transition, even if they're not commercial people. So they know the cultural shift that happens. So I'll talk about those two things. First, in terms of commercialization, let's start with why would a small biotech want to commercialize a product? And we asked that really from our early days. Once we went public in 2020, we thought, okay, we could commercialize this product now, the resources we have, but is it a good business decision? And what we realized is it's actually the best way in our space to get something to patients. And when you're creating a new category, you need sales reps and marketers and others that are really invested in that one product. And then in eye care specifically, we didn't see that there was a leading company with a leading sales force where we'd say, okay, it makes sense to partner with that company. So it was a combination of why should we commercialize this? It's the best thing for the patient. And it's actually good business sense because there's the economics of doing it yourself are feasible. There's not a partner that you'd say, okay, you're going to go to that partner if you're going to reach mm -hmm. the 10 or 15,000 eye doctors. And remember, this is a pretty concentrated channel as well. So 10 or 15,000 eye doctors, not 100,000 general practitioners. So we started with why should we do this? And the answer was yes. And then we really hired great leaders on the commercial side. And that starts with our chief commercial officer, Aziz Manawala, who actually launched the first dry eye drug and that created a whole new category. And I think you'll see this across our team. It's a tenet of how we hire. We wanted to bring leaders with both great eye care experience and great biotech experience to the table because that would allow us to do things more creatively. So you look at our VPs of sales, marketing, market access, and commercial strategy, and they're very diverse in their experiences. So I think hiring a very strong and broad commercial team was part of it. And I can talk more about those functions. The other part of your question, the shift, we were really intentional about that as a team. We said, okay, commercialization is a group activity. It's not commercial activity. It's a company transformation. So for a couple of years now, we've been using that language. We've been bringing 
our operations and commercial teams together. And that collaboration has really shown that, hey, it's not that R&D, our operation fades in importance. It's that now we're able to get drug to millions of patients that focus on the mission. Even in some of the upcoming things we'll do, like our launch meeting, we'll have our entire company there. We'll not just have the commercial organization, our entire company will be there to make sure that people know that this is actually a group activity. We all have the commercial teams back. This isn't one silo versus another. I'm a real proponent of the words and the actions really showing that culturally this organization is becoming commercial, but it's actually fulfilling the mission, not creating a new mission. And just to unpack the first part of that, Bobby, you said was an important consideration to build a commercial team in-house due to the fact that no one had actually commercialized a brepharitis drug before? It was, absolutely. And if we were, let's just use dry eye as an example, right? If we were having the next dry eye drug, there are a lot of sales reps out there already calling on doctors selling dry eye products. So you see companies that develop dry eye drugs, they often partner, as an example. For us, charting a new category I think made it really clear and obvious that we needed to do that ourselves. That if we contracted with a big contract sales organization or partnered with a big pharma, that might not be the most effective way to have a successful launch. And to take that a step further now, given the success and recent approval, I'm curious how this process is informing some of your other late stage programs, if at all, or if it's status quo? It absolutely does. It can't become that commercial centric organization. We're now a 30 year company is out there selling product and then say, okay, we're just going to continue to develop whatever program comes our way. So I'd say there's two ways it's changed our perspectives. One is while we have a very diverse and impactful pipeline, and that includes another indication for the IMGD, a live disease prevention product, a rosacea treatment product. So very diverse. We have actually put our stake in the ground and said, we want to be an eye care company longer term. So we want to be a leading eye care company that's likely to create new categories in eye care, not just demonized blepharitis. And so that has implications. So what do we do with those pipeline programs? We want those to get to patients and each of those products can serve millions of patients as well. But what our expertise is to get them through phase two and likely partner the non-eye care programs. And that's because you do the, the same, why should we commercialize it exercise, say in rosacea, there are actually great dermatology sales forces out there. In Lyme disease, a new category, there are companies with vaccine and infectious disease experience that can take that to all the PCPs and infectious disease doctors that are needed. So that's one shift. We plant our flag and we say we're going to be an eye care company. The other shift is now we have a platform that's commercial. And so if you think about it on a sales rep level, for example, that sales rep, as they sell Xdemvi and create a blockbuster around that, they have access to different conversations with doctors. They could say, hey, I have another product that could serve your patients this way. And so there becomes a synergy there. And so one of the things we think about is late stage products. How do we get a product to in the bag of that sales rep? Because now that's part of our core competency as being a commercial company. Those are two ways that we've changed our thinking about pipeline development. 
Wonderful. That's really helpful, Bobby. Talk to us a little bit about perhaps lessons learned from FDA interactions and what you would apply to some of the other assets in your pipeline. Huge learnings there that have been really positive for us. And I've been involved in other companies that didn't have a smooth path as, as we've had. So my lessons there are probably first and foremost, establish contact with the FDA early. And that way you get a clear sense of what is that division thinking about your program, about your disease. And I think a lot of times companies are fearful of going to the FDA early. We don't have enough data. What if we hear something we're not going to like? And so I would advise companies to go early and go often um, along the way. And then I think the other really important component of our success has been developing a complete and robust package. You look at our trials and we had 800 plus patients across two pivotal trials. And we could have actually gotten by with less, but we said we wanted a really robust package that has the greatest chance of being statistically significantly positive, which our trials were, that covers all the questions that can be asked around safety. And that can be hard to do as a smaller, less resourced company, but we kept our focus on complete quality package along the way. So those are the two simple keys, I would say, is communicate actively and don't take shortcuts. When you're talking about an FDA approval, submitting an NDA, you can't take any shortcuts. You think about small companies moving faster, but at that point, you have to do things just like a big company. Yeah, it's too much risk at hand to try to cut corners at that point. Yeah, totally. Bobby, there's a lot that's changed for you over the last couple of weeks as well. Talk to us about how you're thinking about your own role at Tarsus and the evolution of that role now that you're a commercial stage company and who you'll be tapping into to help ease that transition. I think about that probably the first thing every day is, okay, I'm the CEO now of a commercial company and I'm a physician, scientist, entrepreneur. And so how do I do this? Should I be doing this? And then how do I do it successfully? And I start with, this is the fulfillment of my personal mission to actually get drug to millions of patients, to impact millions of lives that wouldn't otherwise have a treatment. And I look at our commercial approach and it has to be centered on clinical and science, right? And so those are two things that I really bring to the table in terms of my own competency. Then I think about when you're a small company as the CEO, you can actually know everything in the company. And now as a bigger company that's so diverse, I know a small fraction of things in the company. And so what, what does that mean? I need to have not only great leaders, but empowered leaders. And so I think about my role as an enabler and an empower of our leadership team. And I've used this term with our team. I heard it from the Merck CEO, Ken Frazier. He put it this way, that his job is to be the compass, not the GPS. And so I think about that as a very simple way to describe my role. I need to be the compass, not the GPS. When you're a smaller company leader, you can be the GPS. Hey, we should do things this way. Right now it's, okay, what are the couple of key questions I can ask to help that leader and that team really stay oriented to our mission? That's not an easy task. That is not an easy task. And so picking those moments, bringing my own energy the right way to the team, and then we're now 200 decent people and we have leaders that 
are very motivated and very ambitious. And so they want to develop themselves. And so I think about that a lot. How do I help develop each of my direct reports? And then how do we have an infrastructure that allows our VPs and directors and all leaders in the company to develop themselves through execution at Parsis in a way that they couldn't elsewhere? So I think we talked about before, my job changes every quarter and it's no different now. It's continuing to change every quarter. And I just go back to, this is actually the biggest impact I could have is leading a commercial organization that could also innovate and develop new products and bring new products to market. And so it's a true privilege to be in the role at this point. Bobby, before we let you run, would like to ask you to reflect for a minute and given all that you've experienced over your career and your training and such, what's one piece of advice you wish you could provide your younger self knowing all that you now know? There's so much. I would probably boil it down to don't be afraid to do the hard work. Going straight into a venture capital firm, that was a fairly privileged path to becoming an entrepreneur. But I would say nowadays, and with Tarsus and any other company that I get involved in, frankly, as a board member, I love it when that's been bootstrapped, when the team has figured it out before raising that money because I think it makes you stronger as a leader, as a company. And I think it makes your story that much better for an investor. And ultimately, I think it allows you as the founder to lead that company longer term, which I think is best for most companies. You have to grow a lot when you say, I want to sign up for this next chapter. We talked about my growth, but don't be afraid to do the hard work is the one message I'd want to leave your audience with. Great. Bobby, it was a pleasure having you back on, on the heels of such amazing news for you and the team over at Tarsus. Wishing you continued success as you become a commercial org as of yesterday and (laughs) also in your new role as a father. Really happy for you. Thank you, Rahul. Very much appreciate the opportunity to talk to you and your audience. And it's not going to be easy for us, but I'm very confident in our path forward. Thanks, Bobby. Thank you for listening to this episode of Biotech 2050. This episode is hosted by me, Rahul Chaturvedi. If you enjoyed this episode of Biotech 2050, please subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. Also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Biotech2050pod. Again, that's Biotech2050pod. Until next time.